You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, as the UK debates leaving the EU, other member states mark Europe Day on May the 9th by pressing the case for a future of further integration. In Brazil, the suspension of President Dilma Rousseff by the Senate pending impeachment proceedings is seen as saying as much about the dysfunctional nature of that body populated as it is by 28 deeply corrupt political parties as it does about Rousseff and her guilt. And the Philippines has also in the last few days acquired a new president. On Monday, Rodrigo Duterte announced that he would reintroduce hanging for capital offences and that he would bring communist guerrillas into his cabinet. His election campaign suggested the country might be going back to the future, conjuring up memories of previous strongman Ferdinand Marcos. I'm Patrick Smith, Worldviews, an Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. I'm joined this week by our European editor, Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, Tom Hennigan in Sao Paulo, and David Shanks here in studio. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. Much of the British Brexit debate consists in painting the European Union as in terminal crisis, incapable of dealing with any of the challenges it faces from the euro to Greece to migration. Better to get off this sinking ship before it goes down, or so the argument goes. But in other European capitals, notably Rome, the marking of Europe Day recently took on a very different perspective. Not a denial of the challenges, but a very different take, Suzanne. Yes, um, well, the head of the EU institutions of the European Commission, of the Council and the Parliament met in Rome uh, on the eve of the awarding of the Charlemagne Prize to Pope Francis. But they took this opportunity uh, to debate the future of Europe um, and there were some interesting themes that emerged from this. Um, notably, there was no mention of Brexit uh, during this discussion. But what they were talking about was what kind of shape uh, Europe is going to take now, what kind of direction, what kind of future. And we saw some very different ideas. We had, on the one hand, uh, European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker um, regretting, really, um, the that there wasn't as much commitment to togetherness, to forward thinking, to integration, um, and and mourning that, if you like. And, and then to, the other hand, you to, had Donald Tusk, the head of the European Council, who was calling for more of uh, attention to be paid to the needs of member states and the idea that the European Union needs to be more of a collection of different member states rather than moving towards some kind of federalist integrationist system. Um, and Juncker talking about uh, specifically about the clause at the beginning of the Treaty of Rome, which talks about ever closer union, and how that this is no longer very much part of of the the theology of of Europe's leaders. Mm, yeah, he talked about he complained of the fact that too many politicians today, he said, are talking, uh, are listening to the, to national opinions, um, and he talked about in the past people were full time Europeans, now we have many part time Europeans, and he said this is the problem with the European Union at the moment. Um, but but on the other hand, um, Donald Tusk, the European Council President, made the point: well, you know, the whole point of the European Union is it's a collection of member states. We need to listen to our member states and our different countries, and we need to acknowledge that there is different between those member states because if we are continuing to move towards this kind of teleology of of ever closer union we're we're in danger of leaving uh, the needs of different member states behind yeah there's a great um uh session in in one of the yes minister episodes about hospitals and one of the officials saying that hospitals would all run much better without any patients 
and, and Tusk cited a sort of Brussels adage that our life would be much more comfortable without member states. But the yes, exactly. Is... He, he made a joke of that, but making that point that this idea that Brussels and um, that the member states are a distraction from the kind of European ideal of ever closer union and a kind of a, a supranationalism. Um, but I think as a former Polish prime minister and as a man who is responsible for getting agreement between 28 leaders at EU summits, he's well aware of, of the differences. But I think he is tapping into a, a broader concern that, that, that Brexit has precipitated, uh, in a sense, the Bre- British referendum has precipitated that. There is now a real uh, existential crisis of the union about what, where do we go next? I mean, even if Britain are to leave, that's obviously going to be hugely um, difficult for the European project. But even if they are to remain, uh, David Cameron has already secured uh, four sets of changes for British membership of the European Union. So many people believe that this is just the beginning of some kind of two-tier European Union that we're going to have, on the one hand, a kind of inner circle, perhaps based around the Eurozone, around a single uh, currency, and then a kind of a second-tiered, uh, second-speed Europe for other member states, uh, including Britain. So I think these are the kind of questions that really are being brought to the fore by the British referendum, which takes place next month. But there is a sort of caricature at the heart of the British referendum, which suggests that uh, there are people there who want a Europe without nation states. The truth is that there's nobody articulating the case for a Europe without nation states, except perhaps Ulrika Gero, who we had on, on the programme a, a couple of weeks ago. But but it's not really, it's a false uh, target. Mm. Yes, um, and a, a lot of academics have written about this, that really, if you look at the European Union as a structure, it is lacking a lot of the features of a state. It, for example, doesn't have its own army. It doesn't control taxes. It doesn't have, um, you know, its own finance minister that a lot of people are, are calling for. It doesn't have a, its one, one president. So in a sense, this idea of the European Union becoming this kind of super state uh, is false. And that's not the direction it's going in. In saying that, there has been a move and there would be a certain um, number of people who would believe that if Britain were to leave, it would allow uh, those who want to integrate further in the European Union to do so. And uh, last autumn, the six founding members of uh, the European Union, their foreign ministers met uh, and had a, had a, a meeting about Europe, about the future of Europe. And at the end of that, they, they released a statement committing themselves to the notion of ever closer union. Uh, so there is a certain, uh, to a certain degree, one could say that the exit of Britain would allow uh, those who want to uh, continue with further integration. But of course, this is uh, leaving behind a lot of countries who do not want to and a lot of citizens who do not want to. Um, and of course, for Ireland, this would be extremely difficult. Where will Ireland position itself in a Europe without Britain? or indeed uh, some kind of a two-speed Europe. Ireland is obviously committed to the euro currency in the euro area, but yet it is very connected to Britain and a lot of the other Northern European member states who have uh, who are more free trade, for example. Um, so I think this whole question of the future direction of the European Union does open up um, serious questions for Ireland. And, and tell me now, was Tusk or, or indeed Juncker making specific proposals? No, I think it was more um, that, I mean, Jung, what was what was interesting about this meeting in Rome was that it took place in the very room that the Treaty of Rome was signed in. 
59 years ago. And of course, we're, we're approaching the 60th anniversary of the signing of that founding document of the European Union next year. And there are already preparations in place to mark that. Uh, but no, I think what Tusk was saying was that he's quite aware. He mentioned, for example, the growing divisions between the East European member states and uh, the Western, the old uh, EU member states, particularly over the issue of migration. And this is the first time we've seen a very strong division since the accession of these countries, uh, many of them who, who joined in 2004. Um, and I suppose he was calling for greater understanding of the difference uh, between uh, different member states, the fact that these East European countries have a different idea about migration, where people like Schultz, uh, the president of the European Parliament, are dumbfounded uh, and believe that uh, these, the position of these East European member states who are against uh, quotas for refugees, for example, is completely in contradiction to the European idea. So I suppose what Tusk is saying is that maybe we need to open up the idea of what the European Union means to encompass the different views views of people. Because I think he's at, at the end of the day, he's, he was a politician for so long, he knows uh, what voters are thinking. And at the end of the day, the European Union has been faced with a crisis in terms of support across the union, where we're, we're seeing a lot of support for Eurosceptic parties and a lot of accusations about the European Union being disconnected from its people. So I think what Tusk was warning was, you know, ignore member states at your peril because we are beginning to leave our citizens behind and we need to listen to the specific needs and demands of each individual member state in order to make this union work. Some of the issues that would uh, be raised in, in, in discussions of further integration are things like economic governance, uh, the question of fiscal federalism. Uh, there's some work already being done on it, the question of powers to national parliaments. The, you talked about uh, evolution of, of the union as, as, as formalising the multi-speed Europe. Are any of these particularly salient at the moment? Are, are any of them likely to see uh, proposals coming forward from for the next council? I think uh, one of the main areas where we might see some development, probably more in the in the next few years, uh, really in terms of time frame, but is, is over the whole issue of greater integration of the euro area. There's a sense that the banking union is not yet complete, um, and even Germany have got some issues about some of the remaining issues of that, about any kind of mutualisation of debt. But I think this is the conundrum facing the European Union, and particularly the idea of the single currency. In order for the single currency to work, it needs an integrated system with a common, we have a common um, central bank, but also perhaps a central finance minister, a central budget, etc. And maybe does that stretch onto to tax? But obviously, in a lot of countries, there's a resistance to do this. People, people, ordinary people, do not want the eurozone or the European Union, indeed, to integrate further. But in order for the eurozone to work properly, it does need to. So I think this is the conundrum we're facing. Um, but I, I do think, and I think Britain. What's interesting about the British debate is that Britain has, even the Remain people have stressed that actually further integration of the Eurozone is needed. And in fact, that would benefit Britain better because if you had a better functioning single currency, uh, that would be better for Britain because of the amount of trade it does with the Euro area. So I think we might seriously see some kind of move uh, to strengthen the integration of the Eurozone member states. Uh, but what the British referendum might um, reveal, whether they decide to leave or to stay, is that it might discourage the other Euro non-Eurozone member states countries like Poland, countries like Denmark, who are not part of the, the, euro current, the single currency, not to join, if you like, to stick with Britain and to stick with this other alternative of being a European Union member without necessarily being a member of the Eurozone. 
One of the critical questions, more political than, than constitutional, if you like, is is the place of Germany in, in the integrating union, with, with, particularly without the UK, is going to be even more predominant. But even in Berlin, uh, there are discussions and there are concerns about that and how do you, do you rebalance things uh, with, without Germany taking over, in effect? Yeah, I think Germany's always been very conscious of this, that it's this kind of reluctant leader within the European Union, really by virtue of size and by virtue of its economic strength. But what we've been seeing in the European Union over the last decade, I suppose, or so, is a kind of uh, a rebalancing of the of the Franco-German anchor that has always been at the centre of the European Union. France has uh, obviously become much more weak economically, although under Hollande it has kind of refound or uh, restated its its strength in terms of foreign policy. Um, and obviously Germany, for obvious historic re- re- reasons, is always reluctant to take a lead in terms of anything to do with defence or foreign policy. And France, in a sense, uh, fulfills that role. But if you if you like, the four largest countries, Germany, Germany France, Britain and Italy, we're also seeing in Italy are interesting developments there. Obviously, there, there are a lot of concerns about the state of, of the Italian economy, particularly its extremely high debt levels um, and essentially zero growth over the last few years. But I mean, the fact that uh, this this recent meeting in Rome took place took place in Italy. Uh, the, the the Italian Prime Minister Renzi also uh, introduced the session, and he was talking about interesting things. He again criticised the, the eurozone's policy of austerity, called for more investment, and he also um, criticised the response to the refugee crisis. So one option that a lot of people would welcome is a kind of um, a stronger role by Italy, by Renzi in particular, who really does seem to be serious about reforming the Italian economy. We could kind of see a rebalancing on that end, because I think there is a fear that the centre of gravity in Europe would would definitely shift eastward if if Britain was to leave. Uh, And again, that would not necessarily benefit uh, countries uh, like, like Ireland or smaller countries in the West. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Tom Hennigan, you've been reporting from Brazil for, what, 11 years, and it's never been in such a mess. It's not just the impeachment of the Workers' Party president, Dilma Rousseff, after 13 years of Workers' Party rule, but evidence at a crucial time for the struggling economy that the political system is completely dysfunctional and clearly not up to the challenges the country faces. Now, first, perhaps we could turn to the new interim president, Michel Temer. To, To put it mildly, this is an about turn in direction. I gather that his first pick for science minister was a creationist. He then picked a soya bean tycoon who has deforested large tracts of the Amazon to be his agriculture minister, and he's the first leader in decades to have no women in his cabinet. How has his team gone down? What does it mean for the legacy of the Workers' Party? Well, obviously amongst uh, Workers' Party supporters and many people on the progressive uh, side of Brazilian politics, uh, they're um, interpreting this new government as... um, First of all, illegitimate, because they don't believe that Rousseff uh, should have been impeached. Uh, secondly, um, conservative, some are calling it reactionary. There have been some picks uh, in Temer's new um, cabinet that have disappointed or outraged people. Um, and the first pronouncements uh, that the new administration has made, which do not all, some of them are, look like uh, balloons that have been put up to see how uh, how they fly, um, and some of them will be shot down, uh, I think, by Temer himself if he sees that uh, that the population is against it. But just this morning, uh, there's reports that the new health minister wants to uh, scale back the ambitions of the public health service. And he's saying that, the, you know, that this service is too ambitious for uh, the 
type of country that Brazil is, the size and the wealth it has at its disposal. Um, but that would be a major, I think, uh, retrograde step if they went ahead with it. I don't think they will, but that just shows you what some of the new people in the cabinet are, are thinking about. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are an awful lot of figures in Temer's government who served in Dilma's government, who served in Lula's government, and some of them have served in both Dilma and Lula's and in the last opposition figure before Temer to uh, have the presidency, Fernando Hickey Cardozo. So there's an awful lot of continuity as well. And I think that on the left, both in Brazil and internationally, there's too much credit given to the Workers' Party um, as a as a genuine left wing government. Um, in many ways, it was a reactionary government. And you mentioned uh, Blair Omaji, the soybean king, who is the new agricultural minister. And obviously, that's a major disappointment to environmentalists and uh, land reform campaigners. But he replaces uh, Cassia Abreu, who was the main representative of Brazil's ranching community. Um, and she was also a very retrograde figure. She was uh, vehemently opposed to land reform. She was against the rights of indigenous communities. She felt that environmentalists were, you know, being bankrolled by abroad as a means of, of trying to hold back Brazil's potential as an agricultural superpower. And she was one of Dilma's closest friends and last allies all the way through the impeachment process. So, you know, behind the headlines, there's also an awful lot of continuity at the moment with the new Temer government. And is Temer a man of the left or is his, are his politics of, of, of the right? Temer, <laughs> Temer, this is a very good question and gets to the heart of the problem of Brazilian politics. Temer is the leader of the Democratic Movement of Brazil Party, which is the biggest party in the country. And uh, it doesn't really have any ideology. It, what it is, is it is a collection of regional barons and chieftains who bunch together, get as many votes as they can, and then sell their party support to the highest bidder. So this is a party that backed Fernando Henrique Cardoso when he ran the country in the 1990s. And then when Lula came to power in 2003, migrated over to the Workers' Party, was a fundamental piece of the Workers' Party coalition all through the 13 years of Workers' Party power until it broke with Dilma earlier this year when it saw which way the wind was blowing and abandoned her. And I think really their only ideology is power. So in the 90s, they were part of a liberalizing um, movement under Fernando Hickey Cardozo. Uh, in the last 13 years, they've been uh, part of what was seen as a as somewhat left-wing government under under Lula and then Dilma. And now they're reinventing themselves as a, a centre-right government uh, party again. So really, they're a party that just goes where power is, goes where the ideological winds are blowing, and really are a way of mediating um, disputes within regional elites in Brazil, where their main goal is just to hang on to control of the public apparatus from which they bilk an awful lot of money, both legally and illegally, for themselves. And very much a mirror, if you like, of, of the parliament, uh, where, where we have 594 MPs, many of them suspects accused of murder and drug trafficking, uh, former football players, judo champion, a country music star and a collection of bearded men who have adopted roles as leaders of the women's movement, even a clown, I gather, called Grumpy. Yes. 28, 28 parties holding seats. And, and are they like, uh, are they like Temer's party? Do they stand for anything at all? 
the vast majority don't. Um, they don't stand for anything at all, and their names can be misleading. So you have far-right parties that have Labour in their title. Um, you have um, a plethora of, of communist parties that go back to various splits over Stalinism in the 60s and 50s. Um, you have environmental parties that have leaders who are amongst some of the most reactionary land-owning groups in the country. So really, Brazil's Congress is a is a completely, I would say, ideologically light zone where, you know, even within those parties, um, people run for election on party platforms, get into parliament and then immediately start switching parties because uh, other parties have done better than theirs or another party can promise them or someone in their family or in their in their political network jobs in the in the public system. So the Congress really is um, a highly personalized um, place where I would say the vast majority of of its members are represent corporate interest or family interest. And that's really it. Beyond that, they're not really that devoted to ideology at all. And even some of the some of the more ideologically sound parties and the Workers' Party was definitely the 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 only one of the big parties that was ideologically sound has become um, worn, its ideology has become corrupted and worn down by this system because once Lula was elected back in 2002, took power in 2003, uh, the, his workers' party never had more than around 15, 18% of the vote in Congress. So that meant they automatically had to look for allies to help Lula pass legislation. And that meant doing deals, um, what, they, what they say in Brazil, you know, taking from here and giving there in turn for something else and, you know, making all these sort of deals that were often um, not ideologically driven and often contained elements that were under the table that were just outright corruption. And that ended up uh, really eroding away a lot of the ideology of the Workers' Party, its commitment to a proper left-wing program, its commitment to ethics in public life. And the tragedy for the Workers' Party is, is that its base, the the, the the party militants, the people on the ground, they never lost that. It was the leadership in Congress under Lula that lost that kind of um, that sort of uh, sense of idealism and just became another one of these parties in Brazil's Congress, which is, you know, power for power's sake and really willing to dilute down your own beliefs until they become pretty meaningless to try and get anything done in the Congress. And, and I understand that the Workers' Party was involved in paying compliant uh, coalition partners a monthly stipend spend of up to $12,000 um, on a regular basis. That was the, the Mensalau scandal, um, which means the big monthly payment scandal, which broke in 2005 uh, during Lula's first term, all, almost cost him to lose power. He was able to escape from the scandal by blaming his chief lieutenant, saying that he didn't know anything about it, which is a bit of a stretch. But there we go. He got away with it. And um, his chief lieutenants went to jail for the scandal. And this is exactly a case of, of the Workers' Party coming to power in 2003, nowhere near a majority in Congress and having to do deals with other parties in order to get the legislation passed. And part of that agreement was give them ministries, give them jobs in the state autarkies and whatnot. But part of it was, yeah, we will pay you under the table uh, monthly allowances in order to guarantee your support in Congress. And it's not, and it's not, 
it's not that law, lawmakers are badly paid. And it's not that law, absolutely not. It's not that lawmakers are badly paid. Brazil's Congress is one of the of the most spoilt in the world. Uh, it's one of the most expensive in the world. I think just after the the U.S. Congress. Um, so, but what was crazy about the Mensalau scandal was was that it wasn't a case of the Workers' Party paying. Uh, members of Congress who were against it to switch sides. This was paying people who had already said that they would support them to keep them on board. But this also, the, the scandal goes to part of the problem that when they were looking for these votes around 2003, 2004 in the Congress, the Workers' Party heard from their allies that, you know, they were having trouble uh, paying off their election debts. Uh, it's very expensive to get elected in Brazil. And so that the Workers' Party said, look, you know, we, we will help you deal with these debts with under the under the table payments with money that was siphoned out of state banks. So this was robbing from the taxpayers to buy support in Congress. Um, so it was a it was a the, the scandal itself was a reflection of the high cost that Brazil's fragmented political system has and the very expensive nature of getting elected in Brazil puts on governments when they come to try and rule the country. And I will return to the issue of inappropriate use of state bank funds in a sec, but tell me about the party of the Brazilian woman. The party of the Brazilian woman was actually founded by a, a group of women, um, but none of them were represented in Congress. But once it was set up, quickly several members of Congress, all male, so an opportunity for themselves. So they said that they were going to switch their allegiance. And as I said, there's an awful lot of switching always within the Congress. They switched their allegiance to the Women's Party. That straight away guaranteed them speaking rights in the Congress, gave them a bit of visibility that they didn't have beforehand. But it meant that we had this absurd situation where this party, and it is a micro party, it's a new party and it's a, it's a very small party. It has a handful of deputies in the Congress that are all male, supposedly advocating for women's rights. And even though none of them had any track record of involvement in, in women's rights issues before, uh, none of them were noted feminists or anything. So it's a party that has once again highlighted just the, the completely non-ideological and even one would say non-serious nature of Brazil's Congress. I was just uh, wanting to finish off really by touching on, on the uh, uh, grounds on which uh, Rousseff's impeachment trial will take place. She is being charged not with corruption, but with um, using uh, money from a state bank, as I understand it, to pad the government's uh, accounts uh, to make them look better than, than, than they did. Is this resonances here because it sounds pretty much what Anglo did with its share boosting scheme. Is that, is that the way it worked? That is the way it worked. Um, now, whether what Rousseff, Dilma Rousseff did amounted to a crime of responsibility which merited impeachment is still dividing jurists here. But what is not in um, dispute, I think, amongst any serious economist is that Rousseff used financing from the state banks. Basically, she had state banks pay expenses, um, obligations by the federal government, whether it was uh, subsidies for businesses or social uh, welfare payments to poor Brazilians. And historically, under Lula and his predecessor, uh, Fernando Hiki Cardoso, uh, the Treasury then quickly cleared off uh, the debt that the federal government had with the state banks. So the state banks would, would make a payment, the, the federal government would then reimburse the banks for that payment. What Rousseff did was she left the um, paying back to state banks for months and in some cases years. 
And not only that, she greatly boosted the amount of money that the state banks were um, were forced to pay off uh, federal government obligations. And basically what that did was it opened up a new source of financing that was not under um, the control of the Congress and allowed her to boost spending. And not only to boost spending, boost spending, but keeping it off the federal government's books, which allowed her then to claim when she was running for re-election in 2014 that the public accounts were in a much better state than they were, when in fact there was actually this whole other amount of debt that it owed to the state banks that wasn't being accounted for. I see. Well, anyway, the likelihood is that the votes are there for her impeachment, whether or not uh, technically, legally, they have grounds for it. Well, this is it. You know, impeachment is is a judicial process, but it is also a political process. And the political system in Brazil just does not want Dilma Rousseff coming back. Um, unfortunately for her and her legacy and the Workers' Party, she has made an absolute disaster of the economy. Um, she was a highly interventionist president. She had a small nucleus of economists around her with rather unorthodox views on how uh, to drive forward economic growth. It all went spectacularly pear-shaped. Brazil is going through its worst recession in decades and the system does not want her back. So it is very unlikely that she will survive the final impeachment trial in the Senate. The only real chance she has of saving herself is that between now and the Senate trial, that the Temer, the new interim Temer administration makes such a mess of things that people go, you know what, let's get her back in here. Thank you very much, Tom. You're listening to the Irish Times. The Philippines, an island nation of 100 million people, has seen the election in the last few days of Rodrigo Duterte, a combative mayor of Davao, a cross between old President Ferdinand Marcos and Donald Trump with a lean to the left, and it's been a severe shock both to the system nationally and to the international community. David Shanks, you've memories from interviewing uh, Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos in 1987 in Honolulu after the people power had deposed them. And I've been struck by how the same names, the same families still populate or define the country's politics. Not least the name of President Benigno Aquino III, who handed over power to uh, Duterte. Can you give us a brief overview of of the years from the end of, of Marcos. One pivotal moment uh, came in 1983 when the leader of the opposition against Marcos, who had been in exile for medical reasons, uh, was shot dead at the on the tarmac of Manila Airport. He was a, came from a very rich family. His wife, Corrie, uh, ran for president following this and was elected. She had to put up with eight coup attempts against her by Marcos supporters. And Marcos was driven out uh, of power by people power. He uh, was driven out by people power and I think, I think President Reagan supplied the airplanes that took him and the, and the, the, the money he had swiped um, from from the Philippines economy to Honolulu, where it, they lived in a house rather like a, a, you'd find a fancy house in Kalini, high up. Cory Aquino was then followed by a fellow who had been the head of the army, who was also a cousin of Marcos, Fidel Ramos, and he wasn't the worst. He did a peace deal with Muslim rebels in the south, got a UNESCO Peace Award. He was followed by another, another old family fellow, Estrada, and he changed the policy and went to all-out war against the, the Muslim rebels. 
And there was another the woman president, Arroya, who was surrounded by accusations of corruption, which the next president, who was Benino Aquino's son, Nino, he investigated, he set up a truth commission. He did a lot of quite good things, he, the, the economy grew, but there wasn't much trickle down. And, the, and that more, that brings us to where we are. And he handed over power to Duterte the other day. Yeah. Now, there's, there's a small number of very rich families who seem, seem to dominate uh, then yeah. the, the Philippines' politics. And if we look at the Duterte campaign, it, it was pretty extraordinary itself. Among other things, he claimed that in Davao, uh, which has seen a, way, a crime wave uh, and a series of anonymous shootings, that he would personally not hesitate to kill gangsters himself. And maybe has done. He said, I will become a dictator against all bad guys. Yeah. And he was known, uh, is known for crude jokes about rape, insults of Pope Francis. Yeah. He said that disabled people should consider suicide. Yeah. He has been accused of having secret bank accounts with hundreds of millions of, of pesos and ill-gotten wealth. Uh, and yet people who know him say that there's a caricature here um, of a sort of crass womanizer vigilante and that that's an oversimplification. They... They described Duarte as a shrewd politician with technocratic uh, and a technocratic mayor. What what exactly does his election represent for Philippine society and politics? I, th I think there's a couple of interesting, sort of more positive things about him. One is that he's proposing to take communists, who all these five or six presidents before him have been fighting, sometimes making peace, into the government. And he's also proposing that the Philippines become a federation. The Mindanao, where the is Islamic rebels are, already has a, a measure of autonomy. I forget which president drew it up with them. But your man is, is proposing a full federation. And what you said about, you know, rape, contrasts with he espouses equal treatment of women, he gives support to L LGBT, uh, people. He is proposing a curfew uh, on public drinking. It's a bit kind of dictatorial, if you like. But and protection for children. It's kind of ironic in view of his, his crack sure. about rape. He, he said as mayor he should be, should have been the first uh, person to get a chance to gang rape somebody. Which in other countries would probably disqualify him Absolutely. Uh, uh, completely for, for, yeah. for, from the possibility of election. But, yeah. uh, but he, he, so he does represent, if you like, a more liberal uh, yeah, voice. Yeah, he's a bit of an enigma to me. He's, he, he, he wants to shift... Uh, the Philippines away from its outright opposition to the Chinese, for example, on the, yes, on the policy of the right. South China Sea, yeah. and distance himself a bit from, from America. Yeah. So it, 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 it will be an interesting regional shift. It will. Let's go back to the Marcos years, perhaps, the 20-year rule uh, which basically defined Philippine politics. You met him shortly after his overthrow. What, what, what do you remember of the man? I was ashamed to say it when I came home, but I, I rather liked them. She was outrageous uh, at the odd time. She, she, she burst out, we had lunch, and the family was there. Bong Bong was probably there, though. They all have nicknames, pet names. Marcos' son, who failed to get the vice presidency, was called Bong Bong. I wasn't taking much notice. Um, she said, remember, Ferdinand, that time we were talking to Gromico, and he said, uh, we could blow the whole Pacific up uh, if, if we wish. And Ferdinand interrupted. He said, "Well, uh, uh, I wouldn't 
quite put it like that. He said, we could perhaps put it more diplomatically. So he was draining her in. Imelda, of course, is known by, for history by for having having bought 1,000 3, pairs. 3,000 shoes. 3,000 pairs of yeah. shoes, yes. She left, she had to leave behind 3,000 pairs of shoes, size 8.5, in, in Manila. And I asked her about shoes, of course, and she said, oh, I have 3,000 now. Uh, people gift them to me all the time. Not to mention the billions that they stole from the Philippines. Yes, estimated at 5, 10 or 20. I don't know here on different figures. There's a quote I like from him, though. Uh, I asked him what his fondest achievement, proudest achievement. And he said, after the war, he said it was, it was to transform an indolent, uncommitted, fatalistic and despairing Filipino into a vibrant, dynamic unit of production, spiritually regenerated. Freedom is not just the abuse of time. This is a bit like lying under the coconut tree waiting for the coconuts to fall. <laughs> but you have particular memories of that conversation in relation to a man we've mentioned already called General Vare, who yes. was almost certainly responsible for the murder of Benigno Aquino. Yeah. Now, what did, did Marcos say about his role, his own personal role in, in, in that? See, I, I taped the whole thing. And when I went away, there was a, a, a passage in it that sounded very much like Ferdinand saying, the Americans, meaning Reagan, they send an envoy, meaning Senator Paul Laxalt of Nevada, who was a big buddy of Reagan. And they tell me to assassinate there. And I played it over and I slowed it down and I brought it to Windmill Lane Studios. I had a friend there. and. They did all sorts of tricks on it, and we still couldn't figure out it. We could, couldn't definitely say he had said assass assassinate. Uh, so it was kind of changed to uh, remove or something like that. And Ken Gray, who was pretty well deputy editor at the time, said we, we can't use assassinate. So it didn't appear in the interview. Right. Uh, Paul Laxalt uh, is in his 90s now. And I'm sure he would deny that uh, that he suggested such a thing. But if one asked the question, qui bono, uh, Marcos certainly would benefit from the assassination of, of Ver, whose whose actions were an embarrassment. If they were. But you know, there's a story that Ver was a half-brother of Marcos. Talk about Ireland being a small country. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a hundred million over a hundred million in the Philippines, but there, there seemed to be an awful lot of interbreeding and close family ties. Thank you very much, David. Thanks to Suzanne Lynch, Tom Hennigan, David Shanks, to our producer Declan Conlon, and on sound, Rob O'Sullivan. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. 